is Richard Holt, and welcome to this, the third talk in our series on key concepts in biological psychiatry. Today, we'll use the broad conceptual framework of cognition and consciousness that we've established in the first two talks to examine the phenomenon of psychosis. You'll note that this is different than defining psychosis, which I'm not sure is possible. This is because, like obscenity, psychosis exists partially in the eye of the beholder, and so Perhaps the best we can do is a version of Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart's Casablanca test, which is to say, I know it when I see it. And this is actually fine, because from a neuroscience perspective, we're less interested in nailing down the specifics of psychosis than in illuminating what psychosis tells us about common informational pathways and the variety of experiences these pathways mediate. And that's why we start our discussion of psychosis not with an exploration of an illness state, such as delusions in schizophrenia, but rather with something we've all experienced, dreaming. But first, a bit of history. Starting in the 1980s, a wave of biologically oriented psychiatrists began to offer a comprehensive neuroscience-based revision to the then-predominant psychoanalytic model. Freud, as you may recall, referred to dreams as the royal road to the unconscious, where the mind's secret wishes and fears were liberated from ego suppression. And while the id-driven logic of dreams appears inscrutable, it is rife with meaning that requires careful analysis to unlock. By contrast, the emerging model called activation synthesis reconceptualized dreaming as a residual effect of a kind of neurophysiological housekeeping that takes place specifically during REM sleep. This was rooted in another concept, called the free energy principle, which concerns maintenance of non-equilibrium steady states amidst the tide of entropy, like the chalk circle drawn on a blackboard in our thought experiment from the last talk. Periodic bouts of dream activity in this model activate neurons in a manner that minimizes the informational entropy or unnecessary complexity in data gathered during waking consciousness. In other words, the brain arranges arriving data as best it can in real time while awake, but doesn't always have the luxury of organizing that information optimally. This informational instability is addressed by the sleeping brain, which tidies up messy and computationally demanding cognitive models into more stable forms. Activation synthesis, therefore, produces dreaming only incidentally. For a much richer explanation of this model of dreaming, I refer you to the work of Alan Hobson, who pioneered it. But we need to move on. Stripping dreams of their psychoanalytic gloss was never intended to reduce them to utter triviality. Rather, the focus was shifted from interpretation of dream content to highlighting dreaming's role in learning and adaptation. In this model, it's no surprise that highly salient images, pervasive cognitive themes, and people from our day-to-day -day lives would make an appearance on the dream theater's stage, but this is not a play put on by the unconscious. It's just the brain preparing itself for the next bout of waking life. And because the neuronal activity that causes dreaming reflects the brain's housekeeper going about its business and is not otherwise intentional, it could not possibly reflect a subconscious author. I'll give an analogy here. Assigning covert meaning to dreams is akin to calling the random assembly of noises on a city street a symphony. Sure, you can experience it as a kind of music, but however compelling you may find the sounds of the multitudes going about their daily business, there is simply no composer. The activation synthesis model has been of great importance to psychiatry, 
opening the door to exploration of other states of mind, including delirium, psychedelic states, and the star of today's talk, psychosis. But it was wrong. Well, not entirely wrong, but in a couple of pretty important ways. The activation synthesis model is dependent on the idea that dreaming occurs exclusively during periodic bursts of cholinergic neurotransmission arising from the mesopontine tegmentum. Now, this may not mean a lot to you, so let me rephrase. We define this cholinergic activity by its only observable behavioral correlate, namely rapid lateral eye movements. So this is REM sleep, and it was long believed to be the exclusive domain of dreaming. In his clinical work, Mark Solms, who I mentioned in the second talk, encountered patients with brain lesions that obliterated REM sleep. This should also have prevented dreaming, but in many cases it did not. As it turns out, about one-third of all dreams take place outside of REM sleep, so this alone was insufficient to topple activation synthesis. However, Solms also encountered patients with lesions in another area of the brain, one that had no effect on REM sleep but did disrupt dreaming. Not just sometimes, but always. And we've met this area before, way back in our first lecture. It's called the seeking system. And before we dive into what this all means, I'd like to point out that this groundbreaking discovery was arrived at simply by asking patients about their own subjective experiences and taking their answers seriously. As in my discussion on mood in particular, and later when I treated consciousness in general, I paused to note that subjectivity is an unavoidable consequence of the model of cognition we are working from. In my clinic, where objective data is elusive or often fails to illuminate, I have found time and again that genuine curiosity and an open mind are sometimes better wayfinding tools. But back to our seeking system and dreaming. As you will recall, we defined seeking as the most primary of affective systems. It's what keeps us moving forward in our environment. Anatomically, it is rooted in a subcortical area called the ventral tegmentum, where it sends mostly dopaminergic projections through the midbrain and cortex. The main pathways out of the seeking system, called mesolimbic and mesocortical, project to the nucleus accumbens and the prefrontal cortex, respectively. I, I mention the neuroanatomy here because you'll often see these projections mentioned in the literature on mood, psychotic disorders, and addictive disorders. This is not at all surprising because we already know that the seeking system helps to orchestrate all motivated behaviors during periods of wakefulness. But what's truly surprising is that the seeking system is actually more active in fact, most active when we are dreaming. The implications of locating the source of the dreaming self in the seeking system are hard to overstate. First of all, it suggests that dreams are absolutely intentional and arise from the limbic self rather than being incidental to periodic activation of the general arousal system in REM sleep. As an aside, this is also probably what makes lucid dreaming possible. And while this walkabout may still accomplish the free energy minimization task set forth in the activation synthesis model, dreams are motivated in the exact same way as general consciousness. And like everyday consciousness, dreams have a distinct quality and a protagonist. The psychoanalysts defined this protagonist as a sort of subterranean self called the unconscious, but dreaming is simply the self, or rather its avatar, trapped in the world inside your head. So what do these strange nocturnal peregrinations of the seeking self tell us about psychosis? 
Well, let's take a look at some things we already know and see where this new information takes us. As with all of our System 1 affective denizens, the seeking system functions as a circuit, with connections coming back from its targets. Another way of putting it is that these subcortical areas are engaged in a conversation consisting of reciprocal information flows. This is simply how Systems 1 and 2 work in tandem to navigate the outside world, like the supermarket car park from our first talk. In the case of dreaming, however, these occur in the absence of data from the external world. The car park is entirely inside our head. Absent feedback from the outside world, the System 1 seeker enters the System 2 Hall of Mirrors without the possibility to make fine adjustments to align them with an external reality. But there's still enough of an internal world to engage in inference, including the daydreaming self encoded in the default mode network. And in dreams we experience the mind wandering, seeking in a state of informational eclipse. Dreaming, then, is what happens when the seeking system engages in its normal activity of epistemic foraging, but is denied information from the outside world. Absent the data needed for precisioning this flow, the reciprocal conversations that your ventral tegmentum is having with the rest of your brain can get rather surreal. This is because there is no external reality against which to compare the resulting experience, so the only options the brain really has are to either accept it as true or call the whole thing off. When our uncertain dreaming brain asks, should the sky be kaleidoscopic and should that giant owl be talking to me? The answer is usually, sure, why not? This serial auto-reinforcing inference, or dream logic, is often bizarre by the standard of waking life, and yet it is experienced in real time as indisputably true and internally consistent. In other words, dreams are hallucinations accompanied by delusions, a type of perfectly normal psychosis. And with a purpose, because evolutionarily there is almost no chance that dreaming is maladaptive, and so there's clearly some value in motivated inference liberated from the constraints of the external world. And here I want to give full credit to the activation synthesis folks, who I think got this part absolutely right. Dreaming almost certainly is important in consolidation of learning and performs this free energy housekeeping function in its own delightfully weird way. Although we forget most of them, dreams can fuel creativity, terrify us, connect us to lost places and to other people, confuse us and make us laugh. And to quote Edgar Allan Poe, is all that we see or seem but a dream within a dream. And so before I move from dream states to psychosis, I'd like to point out how heterogeneous dreams truly are, a trait they share with our waking delusions, which we will touch upon next. Human experience is broad and deep, and the more I encounter it in myself and through others, the less certain I become in my definitions of what is normal versus what is pathological. But even if I can't define it, I ought to at least try and describe it. If consciousness is an internally generated, continuously updated model of the external environment, psychosis is simply any failure to reliably sample or make inferences about that world. Recalling the language from our previous talk, psychosis is a kind of systematically erroneous Bayesian filtering. This is an incredibly broad definition and conceivably includes experiences as diverse as dreaming, synesthesia, phantom limb pain, delirium, hypnagogic visions, hallucinogen use, sleep deprivation, religious ecstasy, and schizophrenia. 
And as I noted at the outset, within our current framework, we are less interested in whether or not these phenomena are pathological, but rather to what extent they are understandable. Clinically, this means starting with the notion that your patients are, first and foremost, having experiences, and ripening your own understanding of that before you make the leap to diagnostic categories. Part three of our discussion today will focus on how we go about this. Accordingly, the next portion of the talk will look more closely at the computational processes that underlie delusions, as these can teach us much about higher-order metacognition, or the models of models, that sit at or near the top of inferential predictive hierarchies. These, in turn, will inform our subsequent talks on anxiety states and psychedelic therapy. But I would like to end this first portion of our talk by reiterating that we are operating within an informational model of cognition one in which neurotransmitters play an important part, but are not the determining factors in the overall shape of consciousness. And I'll admit, the temptation to think big is almost irresistible when you encounter a strongly psychoactive substance. Ironically, this is likely a function of our brain's own bias towards salience when building explanatory models. We'll return to this notion on our discussion of set and setting in psychedelic therapy, but for now, I want to emphasize that while we often therapeutically enter these informational pathways via single neurotransmitters, the overall states of consciousness in which they participate are far more complex, more anatomically and computationally distributed than any single system can account for. To demonstrate this, and before we talk about delusions, which are frequently thematically paranoid in their narrative form, Let's look at how various systems would be impacted if you really were the target of an actual conspiracy. Here's what that might look like. Over time, the repeated experience of antagonistic collusion at the hands of your enemies would coalesce into a cognitive model outlining the scope, those involved, and perhaps even the purpose of the conspiracy. This learning would involve glutamate-mediated long-term potentiation, which in turn would be facilitated by both cholinergic and noradrenergic arousal systems. These arousal systems would also mediate heightened sensitivity to previously neutral environmental stimuli, as these are reclassified as threats. In response to this persistent threat, fear affects would predominate, leading to elevated cortisol levels and other physiological stress responses. The dopaminergic seeking system would be especially active, driving you to evade, confront, or otherwise counteract your tormentors. At the same time, changes in serotonergic affective information flows between systems 1 and 2 would reflect a dysphoric mood state. And all of this would be entirely normal, exactly how your brain and body would be expected to respond to this level of harassment. Also, this suite of physiological responses would be indistinguishable from that of someone with paranoid schizophrenia. Let that sink in. A mutually reinforcing set of experiences and models defines both normal cognition and one of the most difficult-to-treat illnesses I encounter as a psychiatrist. And this highlights the inherent limitations of starting with neurotransmitters when conceptualizing pathophysiological models of complex mental states. There is simply something both quantitatively and qualitatively different about the computational scale of consciousness that cannot be captured by this synecdoche. And the dopamine hypothesis of schizophrenia, which I alluded to in our last talk, falls short not only phenomenologically, but in day-to-day -day clinical experience. For example, if excessive dopamine were the culprit in schizophrenia, using antipsychotic medications at the first sign of illness should halt progression of symptoms. Sadly, it does not. In fact, there is as yet no reliably effective early intervention to halt the progression of schizophrenia. 
That's not to say that we don't have effective medications. We do. But damningly for the dopamine hypothesis, our most effective medication, called clozapine, has little to no impact on mesolimbic dopamine. In fact, looking at clozapine's clinical superiority on one hand and its receptor profile on the other, it's equally reasonable to posit a muscarinic cholinergic hypothesis of schizophrenia. And indeed, muscarinic M2-M4 receptor agonists are currently being developed to treat schizophrenia. You could certainly do some hand-waving here about how these muscarinic cholinergic pathways impact dopamine pathways, but I think in the end that only reinforces the point about the irreducible complexity of the mental phenomena associated with schizophrenia and consciousness in general. And this is why, in the last talk, when alluding to the clinical implications of serotonergic 5-HT2A blockade and activation, for example, I took care to emphasize neurotransmitters are not the culprit in schizophrenia, or the cure in psychedelics, but rather participants in informational flows that mediate these and a host of other states of general consciousness. And this, at last, leads us to the computational model of delusions. to be clear at the outset that what follows is not the only way to look at or to understand psychosis. Moreover, our discussion of the prototypical psychotic condition, schizophrenia, in no way captures the heterogeneity and nuances of this clinical entity. What I do want to convey is that delusions in particular are a state of consciousness that is as varied as dreaming and built upon the same computational architecture. Let's start by clarifying what I mean when I say computational. In the second lecture, we undertook a thought experiment which entailed maintaining a chalk circle of self against the otherwise indistinguishable otherness of a blackboard. I alluded to this as a simplified example of a Markov blanket, an enclosed system that maintains a non-equilibrium state vis-a-vis -vis its surroundings. And we have already established that the interior of the circle, where your brain lives, receives data from the external world then uses Bayesian filtering and predictive coding to maintain a statistical map parameterizing its best fit. We call this reality. Returning to the supermarket car park from Lecture 1, we know that Systems 1 and 2 are constantly updating that reality by managing error or mismatch between existing models and incoming data. When that flock of starlings unexpectedly bursts from the tree, we don't experience error, we don't feel erroneous, we feel surprised. This embodied informational entropy, as you will recall, produces a signal, the magnitude of which guides subsequent model and action responses. And I want to pause here to make explicit that, while I have repeatedly pointed out that the brain does not manage data like a classical computer, I've also taken care to identify its distinct set of computational processes. Markov blankets are statistical partitions. Free energy is a functional, and Bayesian priors have a numerical value. In a universe driven towards dissolution into the surrounding heat bath, this deeply embodied mathematics guides the dance of existence between choice and chance. But let me give a more specific example. When a brain is surprised, the Kullbach-Liebler equation I have mentioned previously governs the manner in which it quantifies the divergence between model and sensory probability distributions. In other words, the KL divergence is how informational entropy, or model surprisal, behaves both mathematically and as the qualitative experience of surprise. 
feel free to look up the formula, but what the KL divergence states is that as the difference between the expected and measured values within a probability distribution grows numerically, informational entropy, called surprisal, grows logarithmically. And if that means nothing to you, let me give you an example of the computational foundation of an actual experience. Surprise you might experience at various heights. The average male height is around 1.75 meters. That's a little less than 5 foot 8. In a crowd of normally distributed people, a 1.75 meter man commands no attention. His height is essentially invisible because it presents no surprise to the model. Because the log of an average is greater than an average of a log, humans are not surprised in equal increments at each standard deviation away from the mean of a variable. I'll continue using our example of height surprisal. You'd certainly notice a two meter or six and a half foot tall man in the crowd as he'd be taller than 98% of the others. But you'd be truly surprised by a 2.25 meter or seven foot four man in the crowd now, a 2.5-meter man would be a singularity, a tale you'd pass along to your grandchildren. Anyone much taller, and you'd be forced to question if you are looking at a human at all. In other words, your model of human height would need to change, or be surprised to death as you ran away from the yeti. Simply put, each inch above the mean surprises you more than the last, and that's because there's a survival maths your body has internalized, called the kullback leibler divergence. And it's the same maths that advertising uses to grab your attention, that your bladder uses to signal urinary urgency, and it's why we have a sense, or rather sensation, of humor. And that's what I mean by computational, namely that beneath subjective experience there is information, there is data. And this quantized experience, this mathematics, flows through physical space in and around neurons via endlessly modifiable connectivity and action potentials. This should feel familiar, as we've already established that the purpose of the brain's computation is to make predictive models of the world. We also know that these models are nested in levels. In day-to-day -day experience, many of these predictive models float bottom-up from sensory information. An example of this would be if you were trekking and noted this valley is flat, and I expect it to remain flat around the bend based on what I visually observe now. Other models of this same situation might involve higher-order heuristics or basic rules of thumb, such as, since river valleys tend to be flat, following the river will keep me on flat ground. And just as model errors are experienced as surprise, the underlying predictive models themselves are experienced as beliefs. As we have seen, beliefs can flow bottom-up from sensory inputs, top-down from models, or anywhere in between. And sticking with our theme of flat landscapes, one example of a top-down, model-driven belief would be, the world is flat. Now, the world isn't flat, but behaves very flatly at the local scale, and so a lack of surprisal to this model would tend to keep the belief in place. This is an example of a top-down inferential error, also known as a state error. The auditory hallucinations stemming from misattribution of subvocal speech I described in the second talk would be another example of state error. In the case of dreaming, we have just seen that those top-down predictions are essentially hallucinatory because they have no access to and thus cannot reflect external reality. But even waking consciousness, with its ready access to external data, is not simply precisioning to manage real-time error.
it is pre-precisioning to avoid future error. Another way of saying this is that your reality, my reality, anyone's reality is essentially hallucinated. And so the normative notion of truth is thus better described as Bayes' optimal, or relative inferential fidelity across the chalk line of our circle. Any process that systematically pushes inference away from the nirvana of Bayes' optimal and towards the complete autism of dreaming can be described as psychosis. And I want to clarify what I mean by autism in this context, as its meaning has evolved significantly over the past century. The autism I'm referencing harkens back to Bloiler's definition of the term as descriptive of the inaccessible inner life he observed in schizophrenia. Autistic was also used in Piaget's developmental psychology to describe the hallucinatory fantasy life of infants. And before we try to parse the distinction between the self-delusion of denial and the delusions in schizophrenia, I will cut to the chase and simply state that the latter, or I'll call them proper delusions, are reinforced by largely non-modifiable traits that constrain reality testing in a manner similar to being trapped inside a dreaming state. But first, let's remind ourselves that contrary evidence forces either a change to the model beliefs or taking action to preserve the belief. To do this, let's return to our trek along the river valley. If, before you rounded the bend of the river valley, you hear what sounds like a large waterfall, you might update your model and embark on an alternate route. Or you may cling to the existing model and continue on your current course, right up to the edge of the falls, just to make sure. Higher-order beliefs tend to be harder to dislodge, and this is generally a good strategy, as these are often, but as we shall see not always, built upon a coherent chain of inference. Because these higher-order models contain worldviews, data that challenges them can be experienced as an existential threat. As a result, we may dismiss the provenance or meaning of any data that contradicts these carefully crafted higher-order models. A flat earther, for example, might dismiss the curvature of the horizon as an illusion, or accuse their astronaut neighbor of a fakery. But this cognitive inflexibility might result from very pedestrian motives, such as the desire to preserve one's self-image as a free thinker, or perhaps to maintain status within the flat earth society. This is not psychosis. To make matters still more complicated, models are bracketed by a kind of metacognition. These are our models of models, our beliefs about beliefs. One example of this metacognition is model departure tolerance, or the amount of evidence we require to update a belief. In other words, metacognition tells you when it's okay to accept the evidence and change your mind. Sometimes to survive, our old models must be surprised to death. This metacognition serves essentially the same function as a t-test in statistics by telling us when to abandon the null hypothesis. It also helps us navigate false positives and false negatives. For example, if upon hearing a loud breeze I infer a false positive distant waterfall with high certainty, I might immediately abandon the established trail by the riverbank to embark upon an arduous scramble up the mountainside. Rightly, my trekking companions would think I was mad. At the other extreme, if even after orbiting the planet with his astronaut neighbor, the flat earther became still more certain in his false negative beliefs, you'd likely throw up your arms in disgust and avoid any further discussion of the matter. And here we see how inference, experience, and learning are intertwined. In the first example, 
I'd probably learn from hard experience that prematurely climbing mountains to avoid imagined waterfalls is a bad idea. This, in turn, will result in updated models and a more flexible suite of responses to sensory inputs. Now, in the second case, the metacognition of our flat earther is creeping towards something that looks like a delusion. As I noted before, we can't know for sure if he is willfully resisting the model update for emotional or maybe even social reasons. But if his thinking is otherwise unremarkable, we can surmise that he has chosen a cognitive path that involves effortful filtering of data in order to preserve a higher-order belief. This may be self-delusion, then, but it is not psychotic, and we see all manner of metacognitive lacuna in otherwise intact or Bayes normative brains. It's why we avoid political discussions at the holidays. But... What if there is a more global dysfunction in an individual's ability to weigh surprisal vis-a-vis prior beliefs? What if, for example, pyramidal neurons, the cellular workhorses that convert synaptic inputs into patterned action potentials throughout the brain, errantly boosted or dampened the incoming data? Well, this lack of fidelity in synaptic gain would be expected to produce systemic false learning. This, in turn, would entrap the individual consciousness in the autism of dream logic, where metacognition can only shrug in the face of kaleidoscopic skies and talking owls. And while it sounds hopeless, delusional beliefs can, in a manner similar to lucid dreaming, sometimes be surprisingly flexible in schizophrenia. I'll end this talk with a clinical vignette describing one such case. And while evidence is only now emerging to support the hypothesis of aberrant pyramidal neuronal gain in schizophrenia, Other distinct electrophysiological differences, called sensory gating abnormalities, have been known for decades, even if we're still not sure exactly how they correlate with symptoms. These responses occur when schizophrenic patients are presented with a variety of sensory, cognitive, or motor stimuli, suggesting foundational computational differences at the neuronal level that may pull inference systematically away from Bayes' optimal. Disappointingly, we have yet to arrive at a comprehensive computational anatomy of delusions. The sheer heterogeneity of presentations within the penumbra of schizophrenia, from catatonia to a beautiful mind, will not lend themselves easily to a unified pathological model. This is why we for many years specified subtypes of schizophrenia, and why I still prefer to refer to the schizophrenias plurally rather than as a single clinical entity. In the end, What I really want to convey is that, unlike denial or self-delusion, the individual with schizophrenia has about as much choice in the matter as a dreamer caught in a nightmare. The subtle but pervasive traits that underlie false inference are as yet impossible to fundamentally rectify with current treatments. However, I don't want to leave you with a sense of futility, as state abnormalities such as hallucinations and, to a lesser extent, even delusions, do respond to antipsychotic treatments. And although our medications tend to directly influence informational flows within dopamine, cholinergic, and serotonin systems, their ultimate effects may be to improve the fidelity of glutamate-mediated learning at the neuronal level. This softening of the grip of a false inference is by no means trivial. As we shall see in the final part of this talk, this gives us something to work with clinically. But I'll wrap up by summarizing where we've now arrived as we embark upon the final portion of our third talk in this series. The computational processes that underlie information flows inside the brain work to infer a perfect internal mirror of external conditions. We call this ideal guess 
phase optimal. We experience the computational process of inferential modeling as belief, and we experience model data mismatch as surprise. Beliefs can rise bottom-up from sensory states, or flow top-down from models, or anywhere in between as they pass into a chain of inference to ensure coherence. Not all surprises are bad, but surprisal magnitude drives salience and arousal. Sometimes brains overvalue evidence, and sometimes they undervalue it. Sometimes we change our beliefs too readily, sometimes we cling too tightly. Fortunately, the generally reliable interconnectedness of sensory data, learning, and models allows for error correction. The extent to which the brain rejects or acknowledges belief-contrary data is a form of metacognition, a higher-order model of models. Another way of saying this is that metacognition tells us broadly when it is okay to change our mind. Self-delusion, hallucinations, and delusions associated with schizophrenia are all examples of state errors of inference. Self-delusion arises from willful blindness, or systemic bias which consists of mutually reinforcing motivations and models. However, it does not involve any inherent or trait dysfunction. Dreaming arises from the motivational or seeking system, but lacks access to external sensory data. This results in a state of consciousness that mimics psychosis, but which may ultimately facilitate adaptive learning. Schizophrenia, by contrast, is characterized by mutually reinforcing state and biologically entrenched trait inferential errors that systematically and maladaptively push all forms of consciousness away from base optimal via unintentional false learning. And so here we are. And for all this, I'm still not entirely sure I know a delusion when I see it. What I have learned, however, is to speak more clearly into the space between two radically divergent realities. And how I approach this space will be the topic of the final part of this talk. As with each of the previous talks, I will wrap up by exploring specific clinical practices that I have adopted guided by the models of cognition and consciousness described herein. I'd also like to do a bit of perspective taking here at the halfway point of our series before moving on to anxiety, which will further our discussion of the trait and state aspects of experience and also how these relate to the inferential models we build and defend. My interviews with those diagnosed with schizophrenia over the years have taught me a bit about the illness, but infinitely more about the varieties of human experience. And so what follows is my response to the question, how can I see these humans, those experiences, better? And while I'll mostly focus on practical applications, I'm going to start with an ethical principle called epistemic justice that arises naturally from the current model of consciousness. And I'm going to start here with an admission. Sitting with someone in the grip of a fixed false belief system, I often find myself asking the thorny question, what is the difference between can't see and won't see? And while we've touched on this a moment ago, the question hints at something beyond motivated behavior and tiptoes against the notion of agency, freedom to make change, and ultimately, free will. 
clinical experience tells me that the same functional constraints that limit the capacity for insight almost by definition impact the scope of autonomous and moral agency. Below, I will describe the manner in which I engage this uncertainty. But I'd like to add that with all my experience and training, I still don't feel comfortable being placed in the role of medical legal arbiter of this boundary. And while this type of speculation is woven into the daily practice of a forensic psychiatrist, it also has implications for compulsory treatment and the notion of informed consent in day-to-day -day practice. And so before I move on, I'd like to briefly introduce you to the concept of epistemic injustice. Again, this is another very broad subject, but in a nutshell, epistemic refers to how we know what we know. To this point, we've established that we know what we know through inference, but also that the probabilistic distributions and fidelity of those inferences are normative. In the particular case of the intersubjective psychiatrist-patient space, when there is a disagreement on what is happening and why, there are a host of deeply structural and institutional asymmetries that favor the gaze of the psychiatrist. And I want to be clear here, this has nothing at all to do with the individual psychiatrist's motives. In fact, I'm pretty sure that most of us truly, deeply strive to be helpful, or in other words, beneficent, to do what's best for the person in front of us. But this is where creeping paternalism can insidiously justify acts of epistemic injustice. This is because it leads to a rather large blind spot, a sort of benevolent false confidence that in our role, we see things more clearly than our patients. Well, sometimes I do, but probably significantly less often than I think. And that's sort of the definition of a blind spot, isn't it? In cases where we disagree with our patients on what is safe or sane, deeply institutionalized biases favor the psychiatrist's perspective. These same forces allow us final say in defining their experiences and also the raw power to impinge upon their bodily autonomy. In the consultation room, in the emergency department, and in the courtroom, I feel the gravity of that dominance. What follows is how I try to look back into that space, to navigate past those blind spots that would otherwise obscure the normative biases in my gaze. And it starts with the seeking system we all met back in lecture one. It involves engaging a kind of epistemic foraging, moving forward into and through the encounter with cautious interest in order to ascertain the contours of an affective state that is not my own. In this sense, I am just a large, complicated rat in a maze, and like a rat navigating through unfamiliar spaces, I keep part of my attention directed at my own System 1 reactions. This is that listening with the third ear I've referred to previously, and again a concept I've borrowed from analyst Theodore Reich. If I'm feeling confident, I then try lending an affective alloy into the space that allows for care, curiosity, and maybe even a bit of gentle play. What I'm looking for, or seeking in this manner, is the first of what I hope will become a patchwork of shared islands of mutually agreed-upon reality that we can navigate together, each from our own perspective. In acute psychotic states, reality testing tends toward its nadir, but only in the case of catatonia or profound disorganization is there complete autism. Admittedly, the navigable level of awareness in many people I meet starts at the base of Maslow's hierarchy. And so this is where I meet them, not with an interrogation, but with comforts. Any charge nurse will tell you that a soft blanket, a warm drink, hot shower, and a clean change of clothing helps the medicine go down. But beyond the obvious utility of rapport building in these moments of genuine empathy, there's something else, 
an opportunity to closely observe how this particular consciousness in front of me models and assigns meaning to our shared surroundings. But again, while I may quietly note the differences, I always try to speak to the common ground. Even if it's something as basic as, this tea is good, that's a common reality that we can share, a space that we can inhabit together. I'm struck by how often my younger self missed the opportunity to hang out in this first island, and how often I tried to push past it, to leverage it to the purpose of getting my assessment completed. I would have learned more asking if they'd like more milk or sugar or offering them a fresh cup. So, young Richard, keep an open mind and listen with your system one-third ear. Remember that the consciousness in front of you is as real and as understandable as your own. Over time, I've learned to sit with my uncertainty and keep those eager System 2 heuristics at bay. After all, yours is not my story to tell. Rather, I see my role is to help facilitate the birth of self-understanding as non-traumatically as possible. This points to the process of cognitive midwifery, or bringing forth from hiddenness, of mood states I discussed previously. And this metaphor has deep roots in the philosophy of human understanding, dating all the way back to Plato's Phaedrus dialogue. Accordingly, the phrase I find myself using repeatedly in this space is, I really want to understand. Can you help me? When the answer is no, I accept that at face value and respond by trying to reflect my current understanding back at the person to see if that can help us find our way back to an island of shared reality. I also admit when I'm struggling to follow and take full responsibility by acknowledging this as my own shortcoming. People with schizophrenia are so rarely told that misunderstandings are not necessarily their fault that they will in many cases respond quite empathically to this admission. In this case, I often present them with a specific phrase that they have shared and has caught my attention, that resonated with my third ear, and I'll ask them to tell me more about it. This can help us navigate to the next island. And let me be clear, these techniques by no means ensure that encounters always go smoothly. Two radically different consciousnesses meeting in clinical spaces that are arranged subtly adversarially and with clear power differentials cannot help but feed suspicion. When I sense a mutual awareness of this dynamic, I try to make it our first island of shared reality. I do this by directly acknowledging that, while I can't pretend to know what their experience is, I'd be pretty wary meeting a complete stranger asking a bunch of questions in this situation too. In this space, a small act of forbearance, such as offering to return within a specific time frame to allow them to collect their thoughts, is sometimes all it takes to establish that their perspective matters to you. Of course, this by no means levels the larger playing field, so it's important not to elide away the real autonomy constraints in play and the fundamental power differential of the situation. Those conversations are better suited for podcasts anyway. One of the more difficult aspects of these interviews is how to respond to intense challenges to the authority of my own reality. This can involve being told what I'm thinking, interrogations regarding my motives, and often gross misinterpretation of previous statements I've made or events that have occurred. This is often where power begs me to let it show its teeth, to let slip the dogs of epistemic inequality. The way my own affect responds to these types of confrontations has, over time, helped me see them as related to the psychoanalytic notion of projective identification. And while I'm agnostic regarding the analytic or Kleinian theories of consciousness from which it arises, we have all probably experienced the strange pull to say and do things that are outside of our normal behavioral repertoire. In short, 
I've come very close to acting out the alien role of authoritarian doctor under this mysterious pressure. For our purposes, I'll define projective identification as the defense of an existing model of reality by actively inducing the person in front of you to embody it, to act it out. And here it helps me to remember our oft-repeated axiom regarding how cognition operates when confronted with contrary data. Namely, you can either update your model or act in a way to preserve it. And so in these cases, it helps to understand that I am not being manipulated or attacked, but rather that I present an existential threat to a deeply entrenched model of reality. As such, the extreme efforts undertaken to keep me in the role I've been assigned in their reality are perfectly understandable. I'm obliged to frustrate these efforts by remaining in my own state of unalloyed positive regard, that is, seeking gently. And this brings me to the last point I'd like to make about engaging with delusions and schizophrenia. While I agree that there's no point in overtly challenging delusions as treatment progresses, we often miss the opportunity for changes or updates to the models of models or the metacognition that supports the delusion. I don't want to devolve into a straw man argument here as there are a lot of data supporting CBT and schizophrenia and a lot of people using it. Rather, I'd like to share my observation that while we often discuss how medications and therapy can work synergistically in mood and anxiety disorders, I think there comes a point in the treatment relationship where we owe our patients diagnosed with schizophrenia an explanation of how the inferential brain works in general, along with an invitation to explore their own experiences through this model. This usually happens after medications have softened the frequency and severity of state psychoses, and it builds upon established islands of agreed-upon reality that we can use as touchstones. And so I'd like to end by sharing a rather remarkable clinical vignette from several years ago now. The client with whom I was working, we'll call him Moses, had experienced what he believed to be the voice of God since his early 20s. This voice was generally commentary in nature, present daily, and at times even reassuring. Sometimes, however, the voice commanded Moses to harm himself in order to enter heaven, and in response to this command, Moses had in the past stabbed himself in the chest, cut his wrists, and overdosed on medications. By the time I came to meet him, Moses had been on medications for several years. His daily voices persisted, albeit more quietly, and while they still sometimes assumed a command structure, Moses had updated his cognitive model of what it all meant. After many years of taking them at face value, Moses now understood the commands to harm himself as coming from Satan, who intermittently imitated God's voice in order to trick Moses into committing the sin of suicide. Interestingly, while Moses did not especially like the way antipsychotic medication made him feel overall, he readily acknowledged that it helped him to differentiate God's and Satan's voices. Moses was still very frightened and distressed by the satanic command voice and tended to present regularly to hospital for brief admissions in order to stay safe. This is when I met him and began to work with him. And so, while this was a vast improvement from Moses' untreated life before, he was still regularly tortured by voices. Multiple medication trials, including clozapine, had over the years done little to progress his care beyond this point. And I'd only been working with him for about a year when I asked him if he'd ever heard of the Hearing Voices Network, a loose affiliation of people who experience voices and who have found one another outside the medical model to better understand this phenomenon in their own lives. I printed him out some of their materials, and while he didn't wish to join the group, he was keen to try and engage with his voices. 
At our brainstorming session, we arrived at a plan to set boundaries with the command voice, with Moses telling it that it needed to stop or at least give him a break. At our next visit, Moses reported that he had tried this technique, but without success. Offhandedly, he then mentioned that even though he wasn't a Catholic, he sometimes comforted himself by saying Hail Marys and using his rosary beads. I forgot exactly how, but we talked a bit more about this practice and stumbled across the fact that the voices never interrupted him while he was doing this. I was a bit wary when he asked if I thought he should try saying Hail Marys to ward off the Satan voice came, because I didn't want him to lose this island of peace and spiritual comfort if the gambit were ineffective, but we discussed it some more and and in and agreed that Moses might give it a try. Well, not only was this effective in reducing the command voices, it also helped Moses to independently change the model of his experience. He later explained it to me this way. While the medications had helped him to distinguish between the God and Satan voices, the effectiveness of the Hail Mary rosary practice had reshaped his belief in where the voices were coming from. For decades, Moses thought the voices were actually those of God and Satan but he came to realize that they were a reflection of his own internal spiritual war, as he called it. In this updated model, when he drifted in his faith, he was opening the door to Satan, and when he was doing well, God reminded him of his presence. This revised belief gave Moses a sense of control that he had never previously felt. What was most interesting is that even though the Hail Marys didn't always work at stopping the voices, Moses became quite fastidious in this religious observance and ultimately converted to Catholicism. And while it was clear that he still continued to experience the voices of both God and Satan, albeit less frequently and intrusively, it was his understanding, his model belief change, that had made the difference in terms of reducing the suffering he endured. This story highlights much of what we've discussed in the first three lectures, and also highlights the underappreciated capacity for model change in those with schizophrenia. I also think it's as good a way as any to mark the halfway point of our lecture series. Music